Well, hello, friends, and welcome to episode 20 of Fully Automated, an Occupy IR Theory podcast. It's January 4th, 2020, and we're kicking off our fourth season of the show with two episodes on the recent elections in the UK. In this episode, we're going to be joined by former guest Lee Jones, reader in international politics at Queen Mary, University of London, who is also a contributor at the blog The Full Brexit. One of the more prominent explanations circulating is that the result was kind of a revenge of the boomers scenario. A triumph of British nationalism, or what some might even call nativism. On the night of the election, for example, British journalist Paul Mason tweeted that the results represent a victory of the old over the young, racists over people of colour, selfishness over the planet. In this episode, you're going to hear Lee Jones repudiate that argument in no uncertain terms. As he argued in a recent blog post on the full Brexit, the results of the election are intimately connected to the politics of Brexit itself, which can't really be understood unless we have a grasp first on the strange tragedy of the British left. In this episode, we're going to talk about the significance of the decision at the Labour Party's 2019 annual conference to support the call for a second referendum. For Lee Jones, this decision was merely the latest in a long series of betrayals by the British Labour Party of its working class base. Now, of course, this is a contestable argument, and I should note that in our next episode, you're going to hear Owen Worth push back on it a little bit. But as you'll hear in this episode, however, Lee's critical point is that this defeat was more a wake-up call for the British left than a defeat of leftist ideals and principles per se. And as we discussed towards the end of the show, there are lessons here for other leftist parties around the world, and especially for activists supporting the Bernie Sanders campaign in the United States. Just a quick comment before we get started with our interview with Lee today. We're heading into our fourth season of the show. Um, It's been a hit and miss schedule getting these episodes out, uh, especially in the last year or so with uh, major relocation for myself, a new job, new pressures. And um, I'm really hoping that the show can uh, be more regular in the future. Um, I do want to thank listeners for staying with us. I especially want to thank the listeners that reach out and communicate with us via Twitter, uh, via email. Uh, we're always interested in hearing what people have to say, whether it's uh, you know praise or criticism. Um, that's how the show gets better. That's how it gets stronger. The show started as a way of trying to communicate and affirm certain leftist principles mainly to an academic community, mainly to a community of international relations theorists and international political economists. But equally, the vision for this show has always been to make sure that the discussions are accessible to a wider audience. And I think one of the most gratifying things um, for me has been to hear from people who are not connected at all to the academic community and to get feedback from them. This show isn't going anywhere. Um, We will be continuing to release these episodes uh, throughout the years to come. Uh, You already know that we have an episode with Owen Worth coming up in uh, the next few days. 
we already have uh, an interview with uh, Brian Schoolis recorded on uh, universal basic income. That should be coming up in a couple of weeks' time. And so really this is an opportunity um, if you're out there and listening and you have an idea for a guest that you'd like to hear on the show, uh, you should um, totally reach out to us and, and let us know um, who you have in mind. We would love to hear from you. You can always reach out to us on Twitter at Occupy IR Theory. We'd love to hear from you. So without any further ado, welcome to our first episode of 2020. Here's Lee Jones. Hey man, we're ready. How's it going? Yeah, not bad. <laughs> How do you feel? Uh, well, we're not celebrating, obviously. I mean, no, nobody on the left would ever celebrate the uh, installation of a conservative government. But um, obviously, we feel vindicated because we've been saying for the last three and a half years that the left has to um, embrace the majority verdicts. And if it doesn't, then it will be, um, it will suffer electorally. Um, and I predicted back in June that the you know, the conference decision, the shift towards Remain mm. be electorally disastrous and so it proved. I really so, want to ask you about that uh, later, Lee, because uh, I think it's going to be critical and uh, I, I, it's kind of interesting that you're already foreshadowing, I think, what I, mm. what I thought might be your position, but I wasn't sure. So, listen, most of the listeners to this show are American and would not be fully au fait with the minutiae of British electoral politics. So there's a kind of couple of different things I want to cover in this chat. And um, I suppose the first thing I want to do is go back 12 months ago when the when you were on this show the last time and you sort of presented a kind of a sociological critique of the European Union. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, could you just like recapitulate that for us again briefly to set the scene uh, tell us once again, what is or what was Brexit to you at that time? What was the political problem that it was going to solve for the left in the UK? So I think the the, the analysis that we've developed at the full Brexit sees the foregrounds the transformation of, of Britain and other European countries from a nation state into a member state. And this is a um, this describes a situation where political elites become less responsive to their domestic electorates and more responsive to each other across borders. So there's a big shift in the location of debate and policymaking away from representative democratic institutions and more to the secret chambers of international diplomacy in the form of the European Union. And that entrenches a broader transformation that's happened since the 1980s, which is discussed in Peter Mayer's extremely important book, Ruling the Void. Right. We've uh, talked about him before on this show. You and yeah. And he, he says there's there's been this mutual disengagement of elites and masses since the 1980s, expressed in uh, collapsing political turnout, um, the rise of a third way neoliberal politics, the collapse of all mediating institutions like trade unions civic associations and so on. Um, And the rise of this neoliberal centrist hegemony in the center that seems to be completely unassailable. Right. Um, And a sense of many millions of ordinary people that their vote no longer counts. 
that mm-hmm. politicians are all the same, that they're not responsive to their concerns and considerations. Um, and uh, there is no alternative. And this, of course, is part of the transformation of political economy since the 1980s. You know, it's part of the, the resolution of the crisis of the 1980s uh, with the domination of the new right and the creation of the sense that there is no alternative capitalist realism, as Mark Fisher called it. Yeah. So there's that domestic process, which is a, which happens in many different countries, including the United States, of course. Um, but in the European context, it goes even further because uh, in addition to this, uh, the collapse of old left parties and the non-representation of the working class in the state and this um, neoliberal hegemony, uh, furthermore, that is entrenched by the relocation of decision-making to interstate institutions in the form of the European Union, which essentially constitutionalizes neoliberalism at the European level and locks in there is no alternative, you know, a kind of Thatcherite constitution for the entire continent. So we, I mean, we developed this analysis of the European Union over the course of many years, but it started really when we were, a group of us were graduate students at Oxford um, like mm-hmm. 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. So we'd, we'd taken this position and... Um, and then, of course, the, the Conservatives called the, the EU referendum. And for us, this was a massive opportunity to break uh, this neoliberal stranglehold on politics. And the left, we thought, should be firmly on the side of um, the working class who wanted change. So the, the, the Brexit vote, as we saw it, was the EU referendum was a massive opportunity to break with the neoliberal status quo and to restore democratic um, policy making and to restore democratic contestation, um, but it was not viewed that way by the vast majority of the British left, mm-hmm. um, who viewed it instead very much through the lens of identity politics and through the lens of morality. Yeah, uh, and there's no doubt that you know the Leave campaign, the official Leave campaign, um, you know, played on anti-immigration sentiment in particular. Sure, of course. Um, but essentially, the entire left saw the vote for Brexit through the lens of um, identity. So the people who had voted um, against the European Union had voted against modernity. They'd voted against decency, toleration, mm-hmm. openness, um, all that kind of stuff. And they were right. basically a bunch of backwards um, knuckle-draggers. Racist, as the term yeah, goes over here. Basket of deplorables, exactly the same yeah. uh, kind of thing. Uh, and that that view, you know, took hold even before the um, before the referendum itself. It was definitely entrenched afterwards. So, yeah. you know, for three and a half, for three and a half years, you've had the left basically looking at fifty two percent of the British public as, as you say, a basket of deplorables yeah. that basically are ruining our our society, and we shouldn't have anything to do with them, and so on. But that's never been our view. You know, our view is that Brexit is about democracy. So, uh, I, God, there's so much I want to ask you based on what you've just said there. But um, I know the listeners are probably interested primarily in your, or well, first and foremost, at least in your in your in your take on you know what the hell just happened here. So, mm-hmm. so let's talk about the election. Uh, maybe maybe the first thing to sort of put just to put it in perspective for people is the scale, the nature of this defeat for the British left. Um, I mean, it's puzzling. It's going to be puzzling for people sitting at home listening to this. Um, you have this very promising result in 2017 where a Corbyn-led Labour defied all the predictions and did incredibly well. And, and, and at the time did not have 
a very strong position um, in relation to having a second referendum. You mentioned this in your uh, introduction there. Um, this election, however, Corbyn obviously at conference changes his stance on whether or not there should be a second referendum and and what happens. The what Americans would kind of term the Rust Belt of Northern England, the voting heartland of old Labour, um, abandons the party. Labour goes down nationally by about 8%. And one of the greatest sort of symbolic figures of that old Labour Party, Dennis Skinner, loses his seat. Um, mm. That's someone in office 49 years with fairly established leftist credentials. So just how bad was this for Labour? It was a total disaster. I mean, it's the worst result for Labour Party since 1935. Uh, it's, a, it's a defeat of historic proportions. Uh, and it's not just the scale of the, the defeat um, in terms of the national numbers. It's the kinds of seats that the Labour Party has lost. As you say, um, mm, right. the so-called Labour heartlands, you know, the, the places, the working class communities in the old industrial um, northern parts of England, the Midlands and Wales, mm. um, places that have been held by the Labour Party since the seat was created, uh, have flipped to the Conservatives. Um, we're talking about former mining towns, uh, former steel working towns that were devastated by the Conservative uh, neoliberal revolution of the 1980s, where the Labour Party assumed um, it could take those communities' support for granted forever. That there was just a basic tribalism, and nobody yeah. would ever, you know, flip over to the conservatives, and that's precisely what happened this time round. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. What, and what is the difference? How do you explain that massive um, collapse based um, on 2017? Yeah. I mean, you have to remember that 2017, the the um, the Labour Party still lost, um, and they lost the previous election too, and then the one before that. So this is the fourth straight defeat in a row. Uh, although many on the left looked at 2017 and treated it and talked about it as if it was a victory. In fact, it was a defeat and, and one that in many ways presaged what happened um, uh, what happened on the 12th of December this year. But the, we have in the two elections uh, that rarest of things in political science, a natural experiment, because there are some things that were essentially the same. Um, the same leader was in place. Right. So, you know, Jeremy <laughs> yeah. Corbyn is often held up as being the source of Labour's misery today, but mm. and he was extremely popular in 2017. Right. Um, and he was seen as this anti-establishment outsider. He was returning the Labour Party to its roots and finally listening to the working class again and was going to do something about, you know, helping them. Um, so he was in place in 2017. He was in place in 2019. Mm. The manifesto. Uh, was radical in 2017, mm -hmm. and you know even more radical in 2019. Mm -hmm. um, and the policies were popular. You know when they're polled individually, uh, majority of people support the policies of renationalising the railways, mm -hmm. uh, of uh, free education, of uh, you know free free fibre broadband. All these uh, kind of giveaways and changes that he was proposing. It was popular on the doorstep. It was popular too. Um, so what's different? between the two elections is precisely, as you said, uh, the change in Labour's Brexit policy. In 2017, the Labour Party ran on a manifesto of respecting the referendum result. Although even then, I would say, you know, for people that were watching it closely, you could see that in in essence, it was actually incubating a Remain position. Interesting. In terms of the, 
terms of the detail of the policy. Uh, the, the official position was that Labour would respect the the referendum and would would implement it. And it, indeed, Parliament had just voted through the legislation to trigger Article 50 of the Lisbon Treaty to negotiate Britain's exit from the EU. So that seemed to be settled. Mm-hmm. So then the question was, um, you know, what kind of government do you want negotiating the exit? Uh, and Corbyn's offer was very attractive. It, but as you say, earlier this year, and it wasn't Corbyn that changed his stance, it was um, a rearguard action by basically the liberal left faction in the Labour Party, um, supported by you know the Blairite right in the party, mm-hmm. um, and many of Corbyn's own youthful supporters who are very kind of um, Europhile, right. um, had been pushing and pushing and pushing for Labour Party to adopt a Remain position. Uh, and it came to a head at the Labour Party conference. They adopted a position that they would still try to negotiate a Brexit deal, um, and then they would have a second referendum based on that deal. Right. And it would be a Brexit in name only deal, mm-hmm. uh, and then it would be remain on the ballot paper. And the only concession that Corbyn was able to sort of you know, hold off uh, was that they wouldn't decide exactly how they would campaign in that second referendum. They would have a special conference later on. To decide how would, how they would vote, and mm. Corbyn was, you know, he Corbyn is a lifelong Eurosceptic, uh, right? Because the, the left in, in Britain, right up until the nineteen eighties, was always Eurosceptic. It was always against the European Union because they understood it for what it was, yeah. which was a club um, dominated by capitalist states that wanted to essentially outlaw socialist policies, and that's exactly what the European Union does. Um, and Corbyn had been a lifelong campaign. He was very much against the Maastricht Treaty, which founded the European Union, turned the EC into the EU. Yeah. Um, he had half-heartedly campaigned for Remain, uh, but immediately said that um, Article 50 should be invoked after the referendum. And he has tried, I think, to avoid Labour falling into the trap of just backing Remain. So he has tried to reach across the divide, um, but... You know, the reality is that the Labour Party had become um, a left liberal uh, party rooted primarily with a dominant faction being the, the liberal left middle classes in the big cities and the university towns. Um, and that faction really, although Corbyn was still you know, nominally at the head of the party, by yeah. summer of 2019, that faction had reasserted its dominance and the Remain position was the, um, was the new policy. So that was the big difference this time around in 2019. And subsequently, as some of your listeners may be aware, um, the government was not able to get its withdrawal agreement uh, negotiated with the uh, European Union through in November last year, uh, resulting in an extension of Article 50. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then it was not able to get through its deal earlier this year, uh, resulting in Britain being still in the European Union for the EU elections, the parliamentary elections um, in the spring of this year, um, which uh, led to very heavy losses um, from uh, both parties, both main parties, for failing to implement the result. Um, And then Boris Johnson replaced Theresa May because the Conservatives realised that they had to get on with actually doing their job. Um, he then renegotiated a new Brexit deal, which was more acceptable to his own party. Um, uh, but then 
the Labour Party and the other Remainers in Parliament blocked the implementation of that Brexit deal as well. And we had an extraordinary uh, crisis in our parliamentary system where um, the opposition was was blocking any legislation uh, going through the system at all, forcing the government to extend the Brexit process again mm-hmm. um, and refusing even to, to call an election. Um, so uh, that's that led to the process being delayed again. So not only had the manifesto position changed, but but Labour had put itself in the position of of explicitly blocking Brexit. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, legislation pro- through. Pro- so progressives in the United manifest- States give the Republican Party a hard time for being obstructionist, but when you put it, when you frame it the way you've just uh, explained it, there, I think it's it's it, it, it doesn't look. It's not a great look. An extraordinary situation where the the prime minister of the of the UK was was trying to call an election to go back to the people and let mm-hmm. them decide, mm-hmm. and the and that included, for example, you know, trying to pass um, uh, trying to to pass a motion under our fixed term Parliament Act, uh, which requires a two thirds majority in Parliament mm. uh, in order to call an election. Uh, within, you know, uh, uh, sooner than five years, as, as is specified in the Act, and Labour Party refusing to to vote for it. So essentially, you had an opposition which was supposed to be opposing the government, which was keeping the government in power when the government itself wanted to dissolve the government and go back to the people. Mm. Um, and this was seen by the parliamentary remainers at the time as this tremendous victory, you know, that they'd forced Johnson, who had promised that we would leave. The European Union on the 31st of October, which was the the, the extended again, the second extended deadline, they were, he would you know leave on the 31st of October, do or die, die in a ditch, blah blah. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so they really felt like you know by preventing him doing that, they'd inflicted this big defeat on him um, because he'd been forced to break his promise. But of course, everybody watching uh, could see exactly what was going on, which is that it was the parliamentary remainers that had forced him to break his promise. And he had strained every sinew to get the country out. Um, and so even though the Labour Party manifesto technically said, you know, we would still negotiate this Brexit deal, the details of the deal that they would, the outline of the deal they wanted was clearly not really Brexit. It was basically remaining in the EU orbit without having any vote over EU rules. Something uh, like then, Norway Plus, uh, as it's sometimes known. Yeah, uh, Norway Plus is it sometimes known. Um, so basically, you know, total alignment with EU rules, but no no actual influence over the content of those rules. And you'd be crazy to vote for that over remaining in the EU. It just doesn't make any sense. So it's right. clear what the actual policy was. Um, and then on top of that, you've got their, what they've actually done in practice over the last year, which is to consistently thwart and prevent any form of Brexit deal um, happening. Yeah. And so that's the big difference from 2017. 2019, the people have watched in... Um, dismay um, as they've watched the parliamentary opposition, which had pledged in 2017. Now, 85% of MPs elected in 2017 were elected on manifestos to respect the referendum result. So that was their promise in 2017. They also promised in 2016 to respect the result. You know, the the EU referendum was legislated for in Parliament by something like 90% of MPs, they voted for it. So they promised in 2016, they promised in 2017, and then when it came to actually implement, you know, implementing Brexit, passing it through Parliament 2018, 2019, they didn't do it. Um, but this was seen as a colossal betrayal by 
um, many people in the so-called labor heartlands. Um, really what was seen at stake, I think, for them was the question of democracy and the value of their own vote. Um, and so this is the culmination of a very long-term crisis in the relationship between uh, working class communities and the Labour Party. But this was the straw that broke the camel's back, I think. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's, that's the difference between 2017 and 2019. It's really the only big thing that changed. Yeah, no, I hear you. Uh, but it's interesting, you know, there's a lot of, um, how would you call it, uh, what happened? What the hell just happened? <laughs> mm. uh, pieces going around already, as you'd expect, of course, right? But um, I think it's just interesting, you know, being on Facebook, I've, I'm friends with a lot of British people um, or, and people who are uh, keen on this stuff. It, one of the prominent explanations circulating both in, in, in sort of shared article form uh, but also just, in, I think, in like commentary and various threads is that what's happened here is a kind of a revenge of the old. It, you know, the, the class analysis is not foregrounded so much as, as, as the case that you're making. And instead, what it is, is a kind of a, a triumph of a boomer nationalism or what some might even call a nativism. And I, actually, I found it remarkable. There was a quote in the full Brexit piece that, which I'll post in the show notes, but, uh, that you authored on Friday, where you quote Paul Mason, um, someone with whom I've had strong agreements in the past, but who here is kind of char characterizing this election as, I quote, a victory of the old over the young, racists over people of color, selfishness over the planet. Now, if that was true, I think this would be a catastrophe, but it, it, it seems a little shallow. <laughs> well, I said to you earlier on that the way that the left responded to the referendum result was through the prism of identity. And this is yeah. an example of this continued um, way of understanding what had happened. So, you know, essentially, if you view politics through the prism of morality and identity, and you think that your side are the good guys, so on your side, it's all the good stuff. Yeah. You know, it's, the, it's the planet. It's the young, it's the the non-racist, and so on. Then you can only understand your opponents in um, oppositional terms. So these, so our opponents, therefore, are the the anti-planet, the 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 racists, the the ignorant, the old, um, mm. the bad guys, the people with no morality, the people who are basically fundamentally wicked uh, and or stupid. And that's how uh, the bulk, the vast bulk of the left, read the EU referendum result. It's how they've, and they doubled down on that. Um, and it's how they still understand what's going on in this country. And it's a fundamental mistake. Um, there are many reasons why uh, people voted against the European Union. Uh. Um, and it is certainly not motivated on the part of the overwhelming majority of people in this country is not motivated by nativism, uh, nationalism, you know, imperial nostalgia, xenophobia, and so on. That that those have been all the accusations for three and a half years. It's not motivated by that at all. It's motivated by um, a sense of desperation at the conditions of working class communities around the country, who have been systematically left out and left behind. 
um, after four decades of, of neoliberalism. And politicians are not listening to them. They're not representing their interests. Uh, they're not uh, doing really anything to help them. And the the vote in 2016 was really a rebellion against that set of circumstances. It was to say, uh, we will vote against what the establishment is telling us to do. We will vote for a more democratic society where laws are made closer to us. Um, and we have some influence over what happens in our lives. The slogan that resonated in 2016 was the slogan to take back control because right. people, ordinary working people don't feel they have any control over their conditions of existence because all that control has been taken away from them because of the crushing of organized labor and the transformation of the Labour Party, which once represented them, mm. into um, essentially a left liberal uh, middle class dominated party. So that was what 2016 was really all about. And it was a massive wake up call for the left to re-engage with its roots and with ordinary working people. Um, but it's a massive missed opportunity because instead they spent three years saying, oh, these people are all thick and racist. Yeah. And, and you know, funny enough, isn't it, but that when you call people thick and racist and then you, and say they shouldn't really be allowed to vote and we should negate their vote, that when you go out and ask for their vote, oddly enough, then they don't feel inclined to give it to you. Um, you know, who would have thought yeah. uh, that that would be the case? No, um, yeah. Well, of course, you know, uh, those of us in the full Brexit thought that that would be the case, and we were absolutely right. Yeah. Um, and this is the tragedy of people like uh, Paul Mason, Owen Jones, and uh, many other, Laurie Penny and many other people on the, on the sort of liberal left, mm. is that they have no capacity to understand um, what is going on in this country. Uh, they just uh, view everything through this moralistic identitarian prism and think that they're rerunning the 1930s and basically the country is teaching on the brink of fascism. I mean, Paul Mason, I'm very surprised to hear that yeah. I have any um, factor of agreement with him because I think he's one of the most unhinged people, uh, certainly one of the most unhinged commentators mm -hmm. in British politics. He um, you know, posted a piece on election night uh, basically saying that we now need to fight to prevent um, Britain becoming a one-party racist state. Mm. I mean, it's just, it's utterly unhinged. Yeah, stuff. yeah. Um, if you listen to what working-class people themselves are saying about the reason why they voted Conservative, and we're talking here about yeah. hundreds of thousands, millions of people who... Um, you know, never voted Conservative before in their life. But they could see that what was on the line was whether they would be would be uh, political equals in this country, whether their vote would count for something. Um, and they could only see that there was one main political party that would say, yes, your vote does count for something. You have given us an instruction and we have to see it through. And it was only the Conservatives that were doing that. And so there is the historical tragedy of the left's response to the EU referendum result, is that the one party to give any sense of political representation to the agency of working class citizens is the Conservative Party. The Labour Party completely failed in its historical mission to represent the agency of the working class. So it turned around uh, and said to these people, basically, you, uh, you, know, you got it wrong. Uh, your ignorant and possibly much worse um, 
and basically you're going to have to vote again and ideally change your mind. Um, and that is just a combination of decades of disengagement of Labour Party from the people that it was created to represent. Um, a lot of pe- a lot of working class people feel that they're looked down upon, mm-hmm. um, sneered at, um, patronised, um, kind of despised and not cared about. And they feel the same way about the Conservatives. You know, they don't expect that much more from the Conservatives, but they feel so much more angry when that is coming from a Labour Party because the Labour Party is meant to represent them. Right, they should know so better. Yeah. They should know better. So you get this feeling, not just of abandonment, but of betrayal, which mm-hmm. they don't get from the Conservatives mm-hmm. you know, because the Conservatives never claimed to represent them. They never did represent them. But towards the Labour Party, they had this deep sense of betrayal because mm-hmm. it was a party of and by um, the working people. Um, and so the working people have turned around and punished them at this election. And if you look here, you said there was an 8% swing nationally against Labour. The swing is twice as high in the most working class areas of the country. Yeah, And that's, that's... not surprising because the EU referendum was the most class-correlated vote of decades. Right, Two-thirds of... Um, of poorer people in this country voted to leave. So, you know, it's a, it's, it's a very, it's a story about class politics and the disengagement of the Labour Party from the working class that it was supposed to represent. Um, okay. And the Labour Party going into, into a form of identity politics and not being able to read and understand what is actually going on in the country anymore okay. because of this way of thinking about and way of doing politics. And so all the reaction that basically says, oh, all these working class people, they're idiots, they're turkeys voting for Christmas, they've been bamboozled, they've been fooled by the Murdoch press, mm. they're racist, they're idiots, uh, et cetera, et cetera. It just, that's just a doubling down. It's a, it's a further reflection of this terrible way of thinking about politics. And it really gives you very little confidence that they can, they, that they can reflect on what's happened and really recover from this complete catastrophe. I think you've put that very well. Um, I want to ask you from a different angle now, maybe uh, to talk about another bit of shamelessness on the part of the British commentariat uh, over the past uh, couple of years. And that is um, as it relates to the figure of Corbyn himself and his leadership. Um, Many of the same figures that you have listed there um, have to varying degrees, um, being part of a a movement to, um, I think, pull at the threads of his legitimacy as a leader. Um, I think one of the big issues uh, was the crisis, the so-called crisis of anti-Semitism. That might be a third rail, and I'm not necessarily uh, asking you to touch it, but um, what went on there? Why was... Why was Corbyn so unwelcome uh, by, shall we say, the Guardian reading class? <clears throat> yeah, well, uh, you know, you're you're right that the it is the same people. Yeah. Um, so, you know, now they're say, they're saying, oh, you know, Corbyn was really unpopular on the doorstep. Um, you know, and it's it it must be because the right wing press has you know vilified him, and you think. 
Yes, I wonder how people got the idea that Corbyn was this dreadful person who was terrible leader and shouldn't be allowed to run the party. Mm. Could it perhaps be from, you know, the Labour Party itself, um, who, when the membership elected Jeremy Corbyn four years ago, the people in the Parliamentary Labour Party have done everything in their power several times to sabotage his leadership and mm. throw him out of power. Everything from coordinated mass resignations from the shadow cabinet right. to immediately after the EU referendum, um, uh, mounting a leadership challenge against him and trying to, to oust him. And then constant backbiting, um, backroom briefing against him, defections from the party to form a new separate party, um, denunciations, people saying they shouldn't vote for him, etc. Cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's been constant. Yeah. So anybody that says oh, the fault is the right wing media, because they vilified Corbyn, needs to look closer to home because the vilification started the moment he was elected from within the Parliamentary Labour Party. Right. Um, now, of course, it's true that the right-wing press vilifies a left-wing leader, but you can that's their job, right? That's exactly what the right is supposed to do. But the so-called left-wing press, I mean, I say so-called, there's nothing left-wing about The Guardian. Um <laughs> Uh, and certainly the Parliamentary Labour Party and most of the kind of doyens of um, you know, the grandees of the Labour Party and its civil society outriders, they've just relentlessly demonised Jeremy Corbyn. Now, I should say that I've never been that impressed by Corbyn. Um, I think he's not a very effective leader. He's not a very good organiser. He's been a backbencher his whole life. He's the kind of person that turns up on demonstrations and will give a speech um, He's not a very good public speaker even then. But he's yeah. somebody that sort of turned up to things organised by other people. And he only became leader because uh, it was his turn from the left of the party to run this time round. And there was a freak coincidence where the previous leader of the Labour Party, Ed Miliband, if anybody remembers him, yeah, um, he had pushed through a change to the rules for how you elect a leader of the Labour Party in order to weaken the trade unions. So this was a right-wing manoeuvre. Um, so he'd opened it up to um, members and registered supporters. And what that allowed was for um, hundreds of thousands of people who wanted you know, more left-wing Labour Party to flock into the party and elect Jeremy Corbyn. So he was elected by the membership, but despised by the parliamentary party because he was seen as this... Um, left-wing dinosaur. Right. It's kind of thrown back to the 1970s who had never accepted what had happened to the Labour Party in the 80s, which is the gradual abandonment of socialist policies um, and the abandonment of um, the working class to court the um, aspirant upper working class and middle class, which was the new Labour project. He'd never accepted that and he'd been an internal critic and opponent the whole time. Now, for the people that were dominating the parliamentary party by the time he became leader, um, for them, the, there was only one political lesson that you could learn in British politics, which is that um, socialism doesn't work. You have to move to the centre ground and uh, there is no alternative. And for them, that lesson remains as true now as it was after 1983, which was when the Labour Party went down to a massive defeat on a on a very left wing manifesto, you know, basically they got very disillusioned with the British proletariat and thought basically they're too right wing, yeah. so we have to the right. 
Um, and so for them, they just saw Corbyn's election as a total disaster because it flew in the face of all of their um, political socialization, if you like, all their ideological um, certainties. Um, so they briefed constantly against him and tried to uh, get rid of him constantly. Um, so that's why he's been you know, vilified and, and attacked all this time, is that he seemed to represent this throwback to a project that is um, not feasible, but also for them not desirable because they're not socialists. They're yeah. essentially left liberals. Um, so that's a big part of it. And then of course, you know, the right has a standard motive to vilify socialists. Um, and, and let's be clear, okay, Corbyn calls himself a socialist, right. but he's a social democrat. You know, if you look at the Labour Party manifesto, um, there are very large scale um, investment suggestions, proposals for a green industrial revolution. But by and large, uh, it's just modest social democracy. You know, the, the the increased levels of state spending as a as a percentage of GDP wouldn't even put the UK at the top of European countries. Right. You know, just take us closer towards the top than we are at the moment. Um, it's it's not it's not transforma transformational, really. Um, it's pretty modest stuff by the standards of some countries. You know, the right. idea of having free university education. For example, it's just, that's taken for granted in most European countries. Um, but in the UK context, for the right, that, that any kind of revival of that, it's just you know, completely unacceptable. So there was a vilification of him as this nutcase Marxist who would take the country back to the 1970s, plenty of that. The anti-Semitism thing is, yeah. uh, is a bit trickier. I think that uh, there is always anti-Semitism on the left. Um, and it is the, I think it's Ross Wolf that wrote a very good piece on this, or at least he had a piece on this on his blog, maybe written by somebody else some years ago, um, calling anti-Semitism the socialism of fools. Um, and it's right that it, it's, it's a way of thinking about <clears throat> capitalism that personifies capitalism instead of thinking about it as objective social relationships needs right. to think of it in terms of individuals uh you know w wealthy money bags um owners of the press etc etc and that's where um anti-semitism can come in and historically has always come into the left um and so it always circulates there there's always the capacity when, when you you know, when you stop doing political education and you stop understanding capitalism as a, as a set of social relationships um, and instead it dissolves into this kind of absurd, personalised conspiracy theory understanding of capitalism, socialism can always move in that direction. There's always that risk that it becomes anti-Semitic. Um, and then it's interfaced uh, with, the, in particular with the issue of Israel-Palestine. Of course. And obviously this is an area where Corbyn is very unusual in the context of the British establishment in being mm -hmm. very critical of Israel and very supportive of Palestinian liberation. Uh, and so his election has sort of emboldened uh, people on, uh, people who are very concerned with Israel-Palestine, uh, very hostile to um, Zionism, and where it shades over into anti-Semitism. 
And clear, I mean, there's clearly a sort of subterranean struggle that sometimes surfaces at the moment about the nature of anti-Semitism, what you can and cannot say about Israel. Um, going on, you know, in, in North America, you've got attempts to ban um, boycott, disinvestment and sanctions campaigns. It's also happening in Europe, for example. Um, and so what you've seen, I think, is the the emergence of a, a strand of um, of the left in the UK, which has anti-Semitic elements. There's no doubt about that. But it's a tiny proportion of Labour Party membership. Because actually, remember, under Corbyn, Labour Party became the largest social democratic party in Europe. Half a million members dwindled somewhat in the last couple of years. But it's huge. And of course, the vast majority of Labour Party members are not at all anti-Semitic. Right. Um, but there is certainly evidence that Corbyn has tried, I think, to um, prevent the uh, just a kind of straightforward crackdown on anybody, um, you know, criticising Zionism. And I think that has shaped over into the protection of people or inadequate action against people who are actually being anti-Semitic. And so there's a there's been a sloth. Um, a slowness there in responding to and clamping down on anti-Semitism. Um, even though it's not a huge problem, uh, it's obviously a serious problem and mm. low parties should, I think, have acted quicker. Mm. But I think there's also plenty of evidence to say that this is something that has been weaponized right. in the struggle against Corbyn to claim that he, as a lifelong anti-racist campaign, is somehow deeply racist himself, yeah. that the Labour Party itself is institutionally anti-Semitic, um, and this has been relentlessly played up by Corbyn's enemies, who I think, uh, you know, really don't care that much about um, about these issues at all. It's it's purely opportunistic. Um, and you know, I think over time, this steady drumbeat, very much uh, pushed explicitly by the Conservative Party and by the um, by the media of all stripes has certainly terrorised the Jewish population of Britain. Um, so the polls showing something like 87% of them were considering emigration if Corbyn going. I mean, it got that bad. Yeah. Um, and some people, you know, just could not vote for a party that that was seen to kind of harbour anti-Semite. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's striking to me that I just saw, literally just after the election, I saw a piece... Um, uh, attacking the Bernie Sanders campaign for saying that even though Sanders is ethnically Jewish, mm. uh, his campaign is anti-Semitic. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, it seems it's like the, the right is kind of picking up this tactic from the UK. Um, so what I would say about anti-Semitism is it was a real issue. Mm -hmm. And I think it's always something that the left has to be alert to. And, and, and it should have been stamped out more firmly. Okay. Uh, but it is a very small problem um, really, um, in in the scale of things, right? I think. So you and just mentioned sorry, go example ahead. To, to problems of Islamophobia in the Conservative Party, which I think are much more significant, actually. Mm -hmm. um, but they've got a free pass on their various racist policies. Um, you know, this is this is the government, the Conservative government that uh, uh, had a hostile. A hostile environment policy on immigration that led to the deportation of people from the Windrush generation. So this is yeah. uh, people from West Indian um, 
heritage, people coming over from the West Indies from the 1950s onwards, who've lived in this country or perhaps all of their adult lives, they don't even have citizenship anywhere else. Um, but they were getting caught up in the hostile environment for immigrants and even being deported, some of these people. But they had an, you know, a, an immigration policy that had terrible racist consequences. Um, and, you know, deep problems with Islamophobia inside the Conservative Party. But they got a massive pass on this. And it was, you know, Labour Party that was supposed to be anti-Semitic. And so this, there was this kind of insane uh, hysteria whipped up against Corbyn that, you know, he was this nutcase Marxist who would turn the country into Venezuela and, yeah. uh, you know, the Jews would have to all flee and uh, just crazy Crazy stuff, really. It got very hysterical. Um, and so, you know, you can understand why the left would say, oh, this is the problem. The problem was the demonization. But the thing is, there would always be the demonization. Right. You have to be ready for it. But absolutely. And it, it's happening to Sanders. It will happen to Sanders. I mean, the yeah. Red Scare stuff is even more kind of effective, I think, in the US context. Gosh, yeah. Um, yeah. And that is not the key issue. That was not the key issue it, that explains the crumbling of the Red War. It's not like people... Uh, look at that and think, oh, yes, you know, Jeremy Corbyn is an anti-Semite. Mm-hmm. That must, that's, I've got right. to vote against him. Yeah, that's that's not the calculation that people are making um, in those post-industrial areas. Um, not that they don't care about anti-Semitism, sure. but they don't necessarily believe it. They can look at it and think, this, what the hell is this? You know, they can look at it with a degree of skepticism. Um, and that that isn't their motivation. If you listen to what they're actually saying, you look at the polls. That wasn't the issue. But there's no doubt that that's, there's been a steady drumbeat of vilification of Corbyn for all of the last four years, and it has got worse over the last eighteen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So maybe I can uh, move to, uh, to to wrap up here and uh, just ask you one or two final questions. Um, I, I suppose under the heading lessons learned. Um, what does the left look like now in, in, in the UK? Uh, what's the future for the left in the UK? Uh, in your piece, you suggest that many working class citizens have only lent their vote to the Conservatives temporarily. And mm. I'm interested in that because I'd love to know whether you're confident in that statement and and if you are, what what makes you feel confident saying that? Yeah, I am confident of it that it it's not that they have been bamboozled by the Conservatives that right. they think somehow that Boris Johnson is is a man of the people that he's going to look after them that you know the NHS is going to be so great or there's going to be some kind of nationalist revival under him or something like that. The Conservatives are not capable of spelling out a positive vision for the transformation of British society. They're just not. And they haven't done that. What they offered them at this election was what people had voted on in 2016. That was their offer and that was their campaign. Mm. Um, you know, it was all about getting Brexit done. That was the slogan, get Brexit done. And that was the only thing that cut through. And it's the top reason that people give by a country mile for why they voted Conservative or right. didn't vote for Labour. So that is their motivation. Now, that means that they're not bound to the Conservative Party out of um, a sense of affection or loyalty or because they particularly agree with their programme. Um, it is to defend the integrity of their vote, to defend the value of their vote and their own 
political equality that they've that they've done this. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they will look at the options again mm-hmm. in five years' time, and if the Conservatives don't uh, address their other grievances, then they will uh, shift position again. Yeah. They'll shift position again. They won't necessarily come back to the Labour Party, mm-hmm. uh, but they may just stop voting again. For example, they won't be motivated to vote for a party that doesn't serve their interests. You know, they, the, the tribal loyalties have dissipated. So that, so I think as a result, the Conservatives will try to hold their new working class support base, which, to be clear, has not only just emerged now. This is the process of a long term um, realignment where working class people have drifted away from the Labour Party because the Labour Party has left them. Um, and the really big realignment came in 2017, actually, under Theresa May, because that's when lots of um, ex-Labour voters who had drifted away to the UK Independence Party, which was the main Eurosceptic party, returned, well, they left UKIP and went over to the Conservatives in 2017. Um, this time round, there was also a flip over from um, ex-Labour voters who perhaps had stopped voting or had voted for the Brexit party earlier this year, or directly they went over from the Labour party, um, or they just stopped voting for Labour. So it's a, it's a long-term process. It's not just a one-off thing where, you know, if Labour just get it right over the next five years, they can just reverse what happened um, a few days ago. That's, that's not the case. This is a long-term process of the transformation of the Labour Party where they have moved away from their traditional working-class base. So if, if the Labour Party is going to recover and to ever to be able to achieve a majority again, so yeah. to become you know, a majority party of government, they're going to have to repair this structural relationship. Um, and the question is, of course, is it capable of doing that? And my feeling is that it probably isn't um, because the rot is too far, too far gone. And, uh, you know, Corbyn tried to do it. I think he was trying to do it. He wasn't that well equipped to do it. Yeah. Um, he was never able to really turn the party into a movement that was able to re-engage the working class. And uh, although he was in the leader's office and he was able to install some loyalists in key positions, take over part of the party bureaucracy and some of the key positions in the shadow cabinet, the bulk of the party and party membership um, is, is basically the, um, is basically middle-class urbanites uh, that have very different, sort of political outlook and way, very different way of thinking about politics. Um, and that's why the lurch to remain happened. And if those people remain in a hegemonic position in the party, then they won't learn the right lessons of what's just happened. There lots of potential lessons one could learn from this. Some of them are correct. Some of them are wrong. Yeah. Um, and so far the reaction has been uh, such that you would have to suspect that they won't make they won't learn the right lessons, but that remains to be seen. Um, depends the tenor of the debate within the party over the next few months. Corbyn will remain in office for a period of reflection. Right. To try to, I suppose, you know, safeguard something of his legacy, something of his project, try to ensure that somebody who is sympathetic to him, sympathetic to the interests of the working class, yeah. can succeed him. Um, but there's a massive rearguard action to say, you know, the whole Corbyn project was a complete disaster. Right. Uh, we need to go 
to basically, you know, go back to the Blair era. That's how you win elections. Right. So that's one, that's one, uh, uh, sort of faction, if you like. And then there's this other faction, uh, which you could describe as blue labor, um, which is to say that working class people are economically left, but socially conservative. Mm-hmm. And so the problem is the left liberal ideology, um, uh, you know, kind of wokeness, identity politics, all this kind of stuff, which is just fundamentally alienating um, working class voters. And that's where we've got to be. We've got to be economically left, but culturally more um, culturally more conservative, because that's where the working classes are. Um and so there's that faction, which we will try to defend the kind of socialist direction of the party over the last few years, but say, but we've got to move kind of rightwards on, on culture. And interestingly, I think that's basically where the Conservative Party has sort of now positioned itself, which is that it has abandoned austerity um, as a formal policy. It's promising more public spending. It's promising more infrastructure spending. So it's moved left on the economy while being... Um, you know, centre right on cultural and social issues, you know, like law and order, immigration, issues like that. Um, so those are the two main factions. And I, I, I don't, I, I suppose I've got more sympathy with the second, but I'm not, I don't really agree <laughs> with, with Blue yeah. Labour. I don't agree with Blue Labour because I don't think that, it's, it's again, it's a form of identity politics for me. It's, it's to say, right. you know, the working classes are culturally conservative and so we've got to appeal to them. Um, and that's to say that they have this viewpoint which is fixed, just like somebody's race or um, sexuality or something. It's this fixed aspect of their personality and sure. we, have to, we have to be where they are. The point of, lead, of political activity is to shift what exists. Um, it's not just to court it, to court what exists and saying that's the limit of politics. We can't do anything more than that. Uh, so, for example, you know, if people are um, culturally conservative, then we have to be culturally conservative. I think there can be an element of give and take of leadership. Um, you know, we can't always think that basically we have to have, be very conservative on these issues just because that's where the working class is. It might be an empirically correct description of where people are. Um Although I don't think it's as true as people suggest, you know, the working class is not like people are reactionary. Um, I think people in this country, especially in this country, I think most people are pretty tolerant and open-minded actually. Um, but also people can be led, you know, and that's where, in a way, you know, Blair was was good on some of this stuff. I always say that the the credit I give to Tony Blair is he transformed attitudes towards gay people. If you look at where people were at the beginning of his term where they were at the end. You know, I, I was a, I was an undergraduate in the years when Blair was trying to reform Section 28 of the Education Act, which forbade so-called promotion of homosexuality in schools, which meant you couldn't really talk about being gay and it was all delegitimized and and so on. He led the campaign on that. Uh, and, it, you know, now we have gay marriage, gay marriage introduced by a conservative government. And... So the, you know you can have leadership, you can you can you can change public attitudes. I mean, obviously, you can go too far. You can overreach your base, and I think that's what a lot of the kind of liberal left woke 
politics. It's so kind of divorced from reality where most people are. It's just, it's become uh, something that most people just cannot get their heads around, I think. Um, you know, it just seems to be them to be completely crackers. Um, so you can definitely go too far. Uh, but you don't have to just sit where you think people are and say, well, that's it. That's the limits of the possibilities of left politics. So to me, I think the thing you should put at the center of a left program is not, you know, let's go back to neoliberal policies of Blair or mm -hmm. let's have the, you know, left on the economy and right on culture. I say the, the key thing to put at the heart of any left program is democracy. Because that is what the left historically should always be about. It's about democracy in politics. It's about empowering the vast majority of people who actually provide, generate the wealth of society, the working class. And it's also about extending democratic control over the economy. Mm -hmm. That's what socialism is all about. Um, that should be the basis of the way the left thinks about uh, reviving itself, because that's the historical mistake that it's made this time around. It's not clung to democracy. It has said to people, well, actually, you know, we don't think that you should, your vote should really count. Mm -hmm. We think we should override your vote. We think we should force you to vote again. We think we should, we should uh, not deliver on a democratic verdict. Oh, we've got so plenty of experience uh, with uh, being told to vote again in Ireland. I Absolutely, <laughs> and France and so on. I mean, this is the way the European Union works. As Jean-Claude Juncker once famously said, there can be no democratic decision against the European Treaty. What's that famous old phrase, like d dissolve the people and install a new one? Elect another, yeah. Who, who came up with that? I have to look Bertolt that one up. Brecht, the, oh, yes, yes. The Bertolt German playback. And that's basically what the Labour Party has been doing for the last three years. And the, and the reaction to... Um, Johnson's victory with, you know, people marching in the streets and screaming, not my prime minister and Boris oh, and so on. Yeah. It's the same attitude. It's that the people have let us down. You know, yeah. there was a, there was a, a quite, quite nice line on Twitter. Somebody said, you know, the problem is that um, the people are totally out of touch with the Labour Party membership. <laughs> uh, and that's the attitude. It's, you know, the people have let us down and how could they? They're so stupid. They're so racist. Uh, and, you know, if that, if that's the route that the left continues to go down, then it won't recover. And the Labour Party will, I think, shrink to become a party of the progressive liberal um, middle class, professional managerial class, if you like. Yeah, I love that term. Um, based in the, in the cities and the university towns. Um, and, you know, you cannot form a government on that basis. No. So it's, you know, there's a, there's a huge amount of stake with how the Labour Party thinks about this. But right. also, I, I do think that the left in Britain really has to think about also its own future um, and not just the fate of the Labour Party. Because to me, the Labour Party cannot be redeemed. That's what I've learned over the last few years. It, it, we've had a natural, another natural experiment in this country, which is, can the Labour Party be used for socialist ends? That was the Corbyn experiment, and the results are in. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> natural experiment, uh, round two. Listen, I've had you on for an hour, and uh, I, I sort of feel like i, I got to give you a choice of two questions here at the end. I mean, first of all, one question, I'd, you know, time constraints admittedly are a factor here but um you know this question of like 
so where does the UK go from here? You know, what about Scotland? What about Northern Ireland? You know, those mm. are, I'd love to hear your views on all of that. But I think for listeners to this show, um, it's, it's already clear that uh, certain politicians, you probably know who they are, you can guess, are, are already saying that, um, that this uh, election in the UK, that the results are going to be very instructive for those who might be enthusiastic here in the United States about an Elizabeth Warren or a Bernie Sanders. Um, do you think that, obviously you don't think that's the correct lesson, but you know, what could a Bernie Sanders campaign do from here on in to sort of avoid um, falling into the trap that Corbynism ultimately fell into? I mean, the Sanders campaign faces a very different circumstance. So I think right. the left, you know, left populism in Europe is crashing on the rocks of the European Union. Fundamentally, it can, they cannot bring themselves to break from the European Union. And uh, obviously, in the United States, you don't have that problem. <laughs> so right, it's uh, not a factor. That, that's why Sanders is you know, still around and you know, our revolution is, is still going and has some kind of a chance. So the, it, they have that going for them. The lesson to learn from this is not, I think, that people won't vote for um, a left-wing program because the left-wing program is incredibly um, popular. Mm. Uh, I think it's true to say that people looked at the program with a deep, uh, a, a deep scepticism because uh, it it was, if you read the manifesto, you know, it's this, it's one thing after another, you know, we're going to do this and we're going to do this. And it just seemed like this incredible grab bag of um, okay. promises and, and, and through and throwaways kind of giveaways, if you like. Um, and it's not that people thought, you know, we don't want socialism. We reject socialism. We just want a kind of moderate um, kind of center left, you know, sort of Bill Clinton, Tony Blair kind. That's not, what was going on here at all when people were skeptical. The skepticism really was uh, intimately related to the Brexit question because um, you have, in the, in the case of Corbyn, you had yeah. somebody who in 2017 was this outsider, this anti-establishment figure, lifelong Eurosceptic, um, completely sort of uh, you know, pushing this line of the many, not the few, and so on and so forth. Yeah. Tremendous enthusiasm for him. Um, but by 2019, he was seen as a total sellout because he'd remained at the top of this party that had reoriented itself to be um, in a party of remain, a party of ignoring the referendum result, trying to reverse it. Um, and so he becomes personally untrustworthy. The party itself becomes untrustworthy. Right. So when you say you're going to do all this socialist transformation. That's your promise to us now. But you promised us in 2017 that you would respect the referendum result. You did it. So how can we trust you now to do something far more ambitious? Many of those things actually would probably be illegal inside the European Union. So there was just an inca incompatibility at the heart of that. Hmm. So there was that trust issue came because if you can't trust somebody on the basic question of democracy, how can you trust them to keep their promises in the future? So there was a scepticism um, over that, relating to Corbyn and relating to the party um, as a whole, it's not that the individual policies were not um, were not popular, but 
there was a sense that there was this enormous plan that was, uh, you know, we're going to change literally everything overnight. And the, the scale of the plan, the scale of the giveaways was in inverse proportion to their commitment to democracy because one was intended to compensate for the other. And if you listen to Corbyn's explanation of what his strategy is, this is explicit. Mm-hmm. He <laughs> knew that on the question of Brexit, Labour was fucked. Basically. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I, uh, I agree. Yeah. You know, they, uh, their base was divided yeah. by the question of Brexit because they were on the wrong side. Essentially, if Labour Party had led a, a leave campaign, they would now be in, in government, you know, um, but they didn't. The party had moved over to the European Union, over to the um, liberal left position of Europhilia, uh, and Corbyn's personal views notwithstanding, the party campaigned for Remain in 2016. And so as a result, you know, lots of people followed the party and took its line uh, and followed this kind of identitarian way of thinking about the results mm-hmm. and so forth. So you have a split difference between, you know, the kind of working class heartlands that voted leave and the urban middle class voters in the cities that tended to vote remain. And so it's always been a dilemma for the Labour Party um, because they basically, you know, not not exercised leadership in the correct direction. Now, they could have also, they could have, after the election, they could have spe- spelled out a programme of left-wing Brexit. They never did that either. That could have that could have united the two wings. But by 2019, right. uh, the country was completely polarised between these two points of view, and Remain had captured the Labour Party. And so, what Corbyn tried to do was to talk about Brexit as little as possible, um, and to basically say, "Look, don't think about yourselves as Leavers or Remainers. Think about yourselves as many versus few. Um, and if we can tempt." working class leavers yeah. to vote for us on the basis of economic self-interest, yeah. then we can, we can trade off Brexit and basically say, yeah, just forget Brexit and let's focus on doing all this, you know, state spending and green industrial revolution and that kind of stuff. So the program became more and more inflated and arguably unrealistic hmm. um, in direct proportion to their need to sort of trade off um, socioeconomic policies for democracy and that was the bargain that was the offer um and the working classes didn't buy it no they said no it, and things will probably get worse for us in the future but democracy has to be defended so they just got that completely wrong um so there's a relationship there between the reasons why people rejected it and the brexit issue the brexit issue is at the fundament of all of this um but i suppose in the uk in the us context you'd have to say you know, you need a you need a platform that is credible, that people yeah. trust you. You are on their side. You honour them as political equals. You don't dismiss them as a basket of deplorables. Uh, and you have a program that is credible, um, in which has some kind of relationship to people's lived experience of that movement. So, you know, I mean, it's not exactly clear how the Labour Party would ever have been able to do many of the things that it was planning because it would be very difficult to run a lot of this through the state apparatus and yet they don't have any sort of movement out there really that would be capable of going into communities, democratising public services, those kinds of things. So the sort of ambition, the offer became delinked from the actual organisational 
capacity. And a lot of people just thought this is this is like coming from a different planet. Yeah, I mean, so, for, for what it's worth, I think um, I think that's one area where Bernie Sanders has a really strong track record. He seems to understand the point that you've just been making. I think it's uh, it's sort of been a lifelong uh, trait of his, whether it was running for mayor's office in Burlington or running for Senate, that he's mm-hmm. he's always understood that um, the things that he's trying to advocate are not popular, that there will be resistance, and that if you don't have a great big movement behind you you're unlikely to be able to put much of it in place. Yeah, given, and I think, yeah. to be fair, I think Corbyn also intuited that, but he was yeah. never very good at um, populist mobilization or, or movement building. He was just never, he's not a very good organizer. He's, I don't think he's a very effective leader. The momentum, which was meant to be his well, sort precisely of work, right. momentum. doing this kind of work, yeah. they got they got really bogged down into intra-party squabbles right, um, right. Within, within the party apparatus at the local level. They never went out into, you know, working class communities trying to organize among them and hegemonizing the working class, essentially. They weren't doing that. They're involved in backroom struggles in their branches to try to deselect the local MP and, and those kinds of issues. Right. Um, and sort of, you know, defending, defending Corbyn himself, um, Rather than, you know, going out into communities and 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 changing them, and ultimately, though so that would put them on the trajectory to become a, a parallel party, and I think that that they were maybe hesitant to to go down that road. I mean, we have these sorts of debates in the United States about DSA all the time, right? Mm. Should DSA be out there, um, you know, in in the in in industry and in factories, uh, linking up with unions to try to uh, empower their strike capacity. I, you know, it it gets complicated. It is, and it, it these questions. The question of hegemony is still on the agenda, and it's been being put back on the agenda of the left the last few years, which is really important because for years and years it wasn't. You know, it was all about changing the world without taking power and horizontalism and these <laughs> kinds of questions. The old yeah. questions about political strategy, building a coalition, hegemonizing the working class. These these questions are now being asked by people on the left again. Yeah. Uh, and these are difficult questions because the world has changed a lot since we start, since we last were asking these questions. Um, and so they're legitimate things to be asking. But yeah. there are certain lessons to be learned from the labor experience in the United States, I think. Yeah. Um, and one is to, to have a movement that is that goes into those communities listens to them, treats them as political equals and builds outwards from their interests and concern. And the big mistake that's been made in the UK is not to do that. For years and years, the the Labour Party took working class communities in this country for granted and -hmm. thought that it could bank their votes on a permanent basis and then pitch to the middle class. Um, And that didn't reverse substantially enough under Corbyn. Um, and in fact, through the rise of identity politics, um, the working class became this despised um, part of society and increasingly just abused and denigrated, particularly since um, the referendum. Yeah. And of course, that is also a mass. That is, there is a great parallel to that in the United States. The, you know, the Clinton's thing about a basket of deplorables. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, and then you could say a lot of people, the way that they responded to Trump's 
victory was to say, well, you know, Clinton was obviously right because these people are deplorable. They voted for this, you know, uh, mm. misogynistic, racist uh, tyrant over her. Um, you know, they must be deeply immoral and, you know, politically degenerate and so on and so forth. Well, I think the reality is that um, in a lot of uh, a lot of Americans that voted for Trump didn't because they thought he was great or because he would really do anything for them, but at least he wasn't insulting them. Yeah, um, that's true. You know, like the Democrats do. Um, you know, at least he would give them some basic a basic amount of respect. Uh, yeah, I and, think that's such an important and make point. their vote meaningful. And the the truth is um, that, that that should be a sine qua non for any left politics. Yeah. Um, yeah. But when viewed through the prism of identity and morality, you just basically write off these people and you say, well, mm-hmm. they're just you know morally degenerate. We don't want anything to do with them. We have mm-hmm. to fight these people. You know, they're ethno-nationalists and they're, you know, we have to fight them in the streets and all this. It's, it's not the way that you build um, a coalition for taking power over the state. Um, and the truth is that if somebody like Biden, uh, probably even Warren, uh, mm. becomes Democrat Party nominee, then Trump will win. Trump will win um, again, possibly with an enhanced mandate. That is my prediction for the next uh, American election. The only All person right. that could salvage the Democratic Party is Bernie Sanders, and maybe not even him. Um, well, because please. if you look, at, <laughs> if you look at the American left, uh, the way that he's behaved in the past few years is very similar to the way that the British left has behaved in the UK over the last few years. Instead of thinking about what the hell went wrong and what has been going wrong for decades, it's been to attack and denigrate um, their opponents and to try to use anti-democratic means to try to get rid of them. So the impeachment proceedings are your version of the United States of our uh, campaigns in the Supreme Court and so on just to get Brexit stopped. So whatever Trump's done, mm-hmm. and you can say that he's done all kinds of bad things, and I'm sure that his policy on Ukraine is totally wrong, <laughs> this is being opportunistic, opportunistically exploited by the Democrats to try to get rid of somebody um, without in a non-electoral way. And it's obviously, you know, the, the balance of forces in the Senate suggests they won't succeed. But if they did succeed, it would mm. be a disaster. Yeah. It would be a disaster for the Democrats because they would show that they are not democratic um, and that they will do anything in their power to uh, follow the rise of an anti-establishment candidate. They, they prove that by nixing Bernie Sanders' candidacy, the party establishment, in 2016 uh, to allow Hillary Clinton to come through instead. Um, And now they're doing it in office. So basically, you know, the big picture here is that there is an anti-establishment revolt going on all across the established democracies. And the left has to ask the question, whose side are you on? Mm. Are you on the side of the majority of working people who are sick of um, the neoliberal policy orientation of the last 40 years and are sick of hearing that there's no alternative and there's nothing that can be done and nothing can ever change uh, and are sick of unresponsive establishment machine politicians who don't want to listen to them? Um, Are you on their side or not? Because if you're not on their side, 
and you just retreat into the state and you retreat into liberal piety, then you put yourself on the side of the establishment that they're opposed to. They're opposed to. Um, and that's what has gone wrong in the context of the European Union here. Um, and certainly the Democrat Party has gone clearly in the wrong direction in the United States as well. Hey, Lee, before we, um, we should probably wrap up. Sorry to cut yeah. across there, but yeah. I just wanted to ask you, um, you know, just for listeners who want to, to find you um, and, you know, where, where can they do that? Where can they follow you? But also, is there anything you'd like to plug? Anything upcoming? Are you involved in any other sorts of um, projects that, that might have a bearing on the things we've talked about today? Well, I just refer readers to thefullbrexit.com. Mm-hmm. Fullbrexit.com is where we post lots of analyses and um, arguments, and we'll be uh, doing a podcast mm-hmm. to analyze the election results, which we'll release in the middle of next week. Brilliant. This um, is going to be on the Full Brexit uh, blog? Yeah, we, um, we have a, a Podbean account. Brilliant. Fullbrexit.podbean.com. You can download two previous result um two previous mm. episodes on the election during the which we recorded during the campaign and we'll record another one on the results so if you want to find out more about what people in that network think then that'll be coming out probably in the middle of next week and of course you're an occasional guest on uh, alpha bunga bunga yeah i mean that's another you know not to plug your competition nick no but, um, <laughs> Uh, Alpha Bunga Bunga is uh, run by uh, three guys. Two of them are members of the Full Brexit Network. Yeah, and I, I I do appear on there from time to time, and I do highly recommend it. As, I do too. And it's a great show. I know they're doing an episode on the election I, as I well. Would imagine. So uh, that'll be coming out soon. So if people are interested in what's going on in the UK, they did they did an episode um, on the during the campaign and they're doing another a retrospective one as well. So that's another source of, I think, really high quality analysis, not just about the UK, but about global politics more generally. Yeah, no, I think it's a great show. It's, it's one of my favorite uh, podcasts out there for sure. Um, yeah. Although I remember you saying on Facebook that every time you listen to an Alpha yeah. Bunga Bunga that talks right. about the EU. Yes. That's the, that's the one thing. <laughs> that's the one thing I can't handle. We'll, we'll convert you one day, Nick. We'll convert you one day. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it might be to the dark side. I hope. I, I'm 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 inching closer every every moment. Rest assured, it's a it's, it's a slippery slope. So well, I can see you're you're internally tormented, but I, I do am. see you making our arguments against some of your American friends. I, yeah, yeah, surprisingly regularly. Um, mm. But listen, thank you so much. This has been great. Um, it is so great to have you back on after a year. And, you know, get uh, your retrospective on where we've come from. Hopefully some people in the commentariat will just put a sock in their mouths. That's, that would be nice. <laughs> uh, you didn't say that. I did. And it's my show. I can say what I want. Okay. Well, I've, said, I've said that some people should just withdraw from public life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's yeah. put it that way. That's a nicer, more genteel way to put it. All right, Lee mm-hmm. Jones. Uh, we'll be in touch, man. Maybe we'll have you back on again. In a, in a year, and uh, we'll we'll see how we're get how how post Brexit UK is looking. Anytime, Nick. It's always a pleasure. Brilliant. Thanks, Lee. Cheers.